Radio Mano Papachango. gentlemen welcome to another edition of tangentially speaking my name is chris ryan i'm your host and i'm sorry for the delay since the last episode i am still on the road coming to the end of the vanthropology 2020 tour uh in the last few days i have been in la joshua tree tucson uh various parts of colorado at the moment i am in grand junction sitting outside of Starbucks. I'm about to pirate their Wi-Fi to post this episode. And uh, then I'm getting on a boat, a raft, and I'll spend the next four days on the Colorado River uh, between uh, Fruta and wherever the fuck we're getting out. I don't know. And that will be it for the summer tour. Um, I'll be in a a house, the same house I rented uh, in the spring, I've rented in the fall. So I'll be there for a few months, stable, and hopefully I'll be a lot more uh, regular with posting podcasts. I still have a bunch uh, backlogged um, that I recorded even before I left for the summer because I thought there was no way I was going to be able to record any episodes during the summer with COVID, but as it turned out, I met a lot of interesting people and uh, was able to to do some recordings on the road. So hence the backup. I will hopefully be releasing two, maybe even three episodes a week until I clear out the backload. Um, Backload is not the right word. Backlog. Backlog, not backload. Backload is when you can't take a dump. Anyway, uh, so apologies for that and apologies to my guests who have been uh waiting and wondering why the hell i haven't posted these episodes totally uh logistical weirdness i blame it on the covid i blame everything on the covid um my guest today is miguel romero who is a friend of mine lives in mexico city as you'll hear super smart guy he's a guy who's i met him through the podcast i think um but I remember I was in Mexico four or five years ago and he and I watched the Super Bowl together, even though I suspect neither one of us really gave a shit about the Super Bowl, but it just seemed like a, a thing to do. Uh, you can find him on Twitter, uh, Red Pill Junkie. His, uh, his handle is at red underscore pill underscore junkie. Uh, he describes himself as an agnostic Gnostic a walking conundrum and the metaphysical oxymoron emphasis on the moron part he says self-deprecatingly and he says my red pills are not alt-right poison so his red pills refer to the matrix and uh sort of seeing through the veil at the underlying reality but not the uh, mega nonsense all right so miguel romero i am going to talk a little bit about what I just experienced in Walmart a few minutes ago. I went in there to get some last minute supplies for this uh, rafting trip. And of course, there's a big sign on the door saying masks are required, you know, social distancing, yada, yada, yada. There's even a guy at the door 
handing out masks and sort of supposedly, I guess, checking to see if people were wearing them, but nobody seems to give a shit. Everybody, I mean, I'll bet 40% of the people in the Walmart were not wearing masks. And there's, who knows, maybe I'm projecting, but I feel like there's this sort of haughty um, pride like, fuck you, I'm not wearing a mask. Like, I'm uh, I'm American, I'm free. That kind of thing. And I don't, I don't know what percentage of those people think that wearing a mask is self-protective. So they're like, I'll take my risks, you know? Which I guess I understand that. When I see someone riding a motorcycle without a helmet, I think, well, stupid, but you know, it's his choice. Um, and to a certain extent, like I say, I, I can, I can respect that attitude of it's my body, it's my life, it's my choice. And I certainly ascribe to that myself in terms of drug use, for example, uh, in terms of, uh, rafting down a fucking river, right? I don't want it to be illegal to raft down a river. Um, I don't want it to be illegal to uh, skydive or to rock climb or to paraglide or to do lots of things that I like doing that are inherently higher risk than just sitting in your living room watching sitcoms. Um, but on the other side, the fact is that the whole mask thing isn't primarily self-protective. It's primarily other protective. It's about if you're sick and you don't know it, or even not sick, if you're just infected and you don't know it, you're potentially spreading the virus. If you wear a mask, it reduces the extent to which you would be spreading the virus. Your the droplets of saliva are not spewing out of your pie hole when you're yakking about the great deal on the fucking XXXL sweatpants at Walmart and so you're less likely to be infecting other people and so when I see people refusing to wear a mask to the extent that they understand that this is about protecting other people and they're still saying fuck that I don't like those people because they are misunderstanding the central principle of community, which is that we all sacrifice a little to gain a lot. And if you've read Civilized to Death, you know that that's one of the central themes of that book, is that our species has survived, has flourished, in fact, has come to dominate the planet, much to the detriment of the planet and every other being on the planet, by cooperating with each other because we had the brain capacity to understand that a minimal amount of cooperation returns a maximal benefit to everyone, whether that's hunting a mammoth, whether that's protecting the group from predators, whether that's stopping at a fucking red light. These minimal inconveniences yield huge benefits for the species, arguably. 
up to the point at which they add up to civilization, which uh, presents all sorts of problems. You can read the book about that. But that's the general principle. So when I see pe people walking around without a mask on, I think, okay, you don't give a fuck about anyone else, do you? You don't give a fuck. You want us to take care of you. You want us to stop at the red light, but you're going to blow right through it. And to a certain extent, you can get away with that because if everybody else stops at the red light, you can blow through it and you might be okay. But of course, when that perspective gets to be more widespread, then you have social breakdown. And that's what we're experiencing right now in the United States, because we have, of course, selfish prick in chief in charge. And that's the behavior that he's modeling. He doesn't give a fuck about anyone else. He doesn't give a fuck about his family, about his friends, supposed friends, uh, about his country. And he's modeling that behavior. And in fact, what he's demonstrating is that it can take you pretty far. As long as everybody else stops at the stop sign, you don't need to. Um, and it made me think of a ship. It's like it's like a country or a community is a ship and we all have our little spot on the ship and as long as we all are cool the ship stays afloat but in the united states with this hyper capitalism that we believe in so fervently what we've done is we've told everybody that they own their little spot on the ship. It's not just that you get to occupy that little spot. It's that you own it. That's yours. And so you get like a libertarian, Republican perspective that says, nobody has a right to tell me what I do with my property, which can include having an arsenal of weapons, it can include dumping fucking chemical waste in a stream that happens to run through your property. Fuck those guys downstream. It's not my problem. Fuck the EPA. It can include producing poisonous food that you sell to people. Fuck the FDA. Underfund those fuckers. And so because we each own this our particular part of the ship the Koch brothers own a big hunk of the ship and they've decided they're going to drill holes in their section of the ship and a bunch of other people have decided that that's what they're going to do they want to drill holes in it because they want to get some fresh water every once in a while half the other people on the ship are saying wait a minute you drill holes in the ship it's going to sink and the ship is we're all on the ship. But those hyper right-wing capitalist fundamentalists say, hey, I own this part of the ship, and if I want to drill a hole through it, that's my right. And I guess it is. Because the way the legal system is set up, there's not really much we can do about it. They want to spew carbon into the atmosphere, we can't seem to get it together to deny them that right. They want to dump poison into the water supply. Not much we can do about it. Not much the kids in Flint, Michigan with brain damage for life can do about it. 
And Flint, Michigan's just the tip of that iceberg. I guarantee it. I just read today there are several cities in Texas with some kind of mind, brain-eating amoeba in the water supply. Hey, good job on the infrastructure there, Texas. Fucking Texas. Anyway, I see these guys walking around with no mask on in the Walmart, and I think these are the guys that piss on the toilet seat. These are the guys who go into a public bathroom and can't be bothered to lift that seat up. They just piss all over it. Fuck anyone who comes in here after me. Fuck everybody else. That is no way to run a fucking community, people. So this ship is going down. I have no doubt. This ship is going down, and we are going to spend some time floating around in very cold water. And we're going to see people go down because the sharks are going to come. You're going to see, if you live in the United States, you're going to be seeing a lot more people living on the streets, a lot more people living in their cars, a lot more people with a hungry look in their eyes, breaking into your car, maybe breaking into your house. This is what happens when you let people drill holes into the ship of state. Fucker sinks. So look around you, find the people you love, find the people you trust, and figure out how you're going to weather this storm. Start building a life raft. Figure it out. Because this shit's getting very heavy. All right, I'm going to play you out with uh, a song I fucking love. And of course, it's partly in Spanish, partly in English, uh, to honor today's guest, Miguel Romero. Miguel also, by the way, uh, edited one of the ebooks that you get for being a, a supporter of the podcast. Uh, I was the one on consciousness, and he also designed the cover where I look like a 70s porn star. It's one of my favorite images of me that anyone's ever created, probably because it aligns with, you know, my sense of self. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I When I was a kid, Hugh Hefner was the coolest guy around, so maybe that's why I look like some sort of Hugh Hefner-esque character. Um, but this song is, is a song that has always touched me really deeply. Um, it's a duet between David Byrne, who was the lead singer of the Talking Heads. You'll recognize his voice for sure. Uh, and a famous Mexican singer by the name of Selena. It's called God's Child. And uh, basically, if you don't understand Spanish, basically David Byrne is just repeating what Selena sings in English, and she sings it in Spanish. Um, there's a moment toward the end of the song where David Byrne sort of lets out a, a long, um, just a long sustained note. And... Uh, Years after this song came out, I saw him in a small club in Barcelona. 
I don't know if I've told this story on the podcast before or not, but it was one of the greatest live performances I've ever seen. Um, not just because he's just so fucking hyper-talented, but he created this vibe because what he did, and I imagine if he ever tours in the future, he'll still do it. Um, but anyway, that tour, and this must have been, I'm thinking this was... Uh, this would have been 97, something like that, 98, 99, somewhere in there. And he, so what he did was he would arrange his, I guess he had some, you know, producer or somebody who went ahead of him. And that guy would find local musicians, each one from a different band, put them together, rehearse the song list, and then David Byrne would show up, do one rehearsal with them, and then they do the show. So this would have been the second time he'd ever played with these people, presumably, unless he'd met them on earlier tours or something. But um, so the, and of course, this is a huge opportunity for the local musicians. And the whole point was that he was sharing his platform. He wanted to bring some attention to these local people and their bands and sort of spread the love. And you could just see how honored these people were to be on stage with David Byrne. And it's just such a cool thing. Kind of reminds me of Joe Rogan in some ways, how generous he is with his platform and how many people, you know, when we we're doing the shrimp parade at first, when he said, hey, why don't we do this as a series? Let's just keep doing this, this is great. And we're like, okay, great. Duncan and I said, yeah, so we'll come to your studio, what, once a month? And he's like, no, why don't we do it? My studio once, and then Duncan's place, and then Chris's place, and spread it around. And, and you know, it's on your podcast and Chris's podcast. It would have been, we would have been thrilled for it to just be on Joe's podcast nine times. But Joe insisted that, no, let's have it on my podcast three times, on Duncan's three times, and on Chris's three times. Why? It's a hassle for him to drive to my place or drive to Duncan's place. It would have been super easy for us to come and he knows we would have been happy to do it. We did it this way because he wanted to spread the love. He wanted to spread the audience. He wanted to help us out. Same thing David Byrne did. Anyway, after they recorded this song, Selena was killed uh, by, I think, a personal assistant or some, some crazed fan or something. I don't remember what the story is, but she was young and famous and beautiful and her career was going great and some crazed person murdered her. And uh, when David Byrne played this concert, I was maybe 20 feet from the front of the stage. As I said, it's a small club, everyone's standing. And he played this song. And when he got to the long sustained note, it was like a howl of anguish. I don't know how well he knew her. I don't know what was going through his head at that moment. But the way it came across to me was like, he was channeling tragedy and loss and grief. 
still hard for me to talk about. There was so much emotion there. Anyway, listen for it. Maybe you'll hear a little of that yourself. The song is God's Child, and it's by Selena and David Byrne. Hope you're doing okay out there, and uh, I will talk with you soon.
All right. Here I am with a guy named Miguel Grimero, who also goes by Red Pill Junkie online. Uh, we saw the Super Bowl together, right? How long ago <laughs> right. was that? I think it was 2016. It was I remember was the the Panthers against the Broncos, and you were rooting for the the Panthers very uh, miserably so because they lost. Oh, really? It wasn't interesting. You were hopeful until the end that they will manage to like recuperate. And- uh, yeah. Well, I, you know, for me, sports. I, I guess I I have sort of a very uh, limited intelligence as far as sports goes, because I enjoy being immersed in the moment. But as soon as it's over, I totally forget it. I, right. you know, if you had asked me who was playing in that game, I it mm-hmm. would have been totally random. I, I have no idea. Um, and if you'd asked me to name players on either one of the teams, I couldn't have done right. It. So I don't really give a shit about sports Um, unless like Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. back that kind of stuff I cared about. But as an adult, you know, it's just men running around and chasing a ball. I don't care. Um, But that was fun. We were in Mexico City. Is that where you are now? Yeah. Is it still technically? Sorry. No, well, yeah, it's Mexico City. It used to be called. Like Distrito Federal, Federal District is, but uh, now they change it to Mexico City. But it's very confusing because I'm in Mexico City, but I'm in the state of Mexico because right. Mexico City is this now this big uh, megalopolis, you know, that is extending like a cancer, and probably you know in twenty years it's going to encompasses territory from other states. But yeah, Mexico City. Mm. And what's it like to live there? Oof, that's a good question. Uh, a friend of mine who lives in, in Los Angeles, by the way, he came to Mexico to visit me just before the lockdown here in Mexico started, right? So he left Mexico City in March 13th. And it was great because I managed to compile a list of places that we could go visit. And I, I guess I made a list of like 50 different places. And we knew that we were go- weren't going to be able to cover all of them. I told him Mexico City is apparently the city with the most uh, amount of museums, right, in their territory. There are museums of everything, modern art, classical art natural history, anthropology. Even we went to see the Museum of the Inquisition because he wanted to see, you know, something weird like tortures and shit. Uh, And that's great, but uh, the problem is living in Mexico, you don't probably get to enjoy all of that, all the concert halls and all the stadiums because it's so problematic. It's a city with the... the biggest number of people in the Americas, we're talking about, I don't know, 16 millions, 18 millions, depending on how you count it. So we have all these problems of uh, traffic, pollution, uh, very inefficient public transportation. And on account of that, well, all the violence, all the crime, like the last time that I used the public bus to go to work, 
I was robbed again at gunpoint and they, I lost my cell phone the second time that it happened. And I count myself lucky because most of the, there are times when people uh, are, are using the public bus and maybe, you know, the guy will just shoot you in the face because you didn't have a, a, a good enough cell phone. <laughs> no. So it's that and more. And I also tell my, told my friend that Mexico is such a surreal place to live. Like there's so many people from different backgrounds of life, so many things. So it's it's vibrant and dynamic and sometimes very cruel, but it has this, I don't know, flavor and, and this way of life. Uh, Mexicans are, despite of our, all our economic problems, you, could, you wouldn't say that Mexicans are uh, pessimistic people. No, yeah, they're they're always like optimistic. They're always trying to find 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 reasons to laugh and and reasons to enjoy life, and it's all that mixed together with a sense of like impending doom, almost like a Democles sore hanging over us. Like you know, Mexico is sits on a, a region of high seismic activity. Right. Yeah, and we had a very big earthquake like a couple of years ago in September 19th, 2017. Curiously enough, it coincided with another previous earthquake that happened in 1985, same day, different years. Really? And we know that. Yeah, exactly. It's very, 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 uh, I don't know, synchronistic maybe. And we all know that sooner or later, we're all going to have another one, you know, another big earthquake that is going to cause a big mess but uh, i don't know life goes on you know and, yeah and mexico mexicans managed to to get by yeah i i visited mexico city the first time in 1984 i think mm. um before that big earthquake um, and then I think I didn't get back until the time I was there with you, um, mm. you know, watching the game in 2016. Uh, mm-hmm. So what's that? That's uh, 30 years. Oof. And yeah, uh, it, it felt a lot different to me uh, on the second trip. Of course, you know, 30 years difference. Who knows how much of that was me versus, you know, the place. Um, mm-hmm. But the first time I was there in the 80s, it felt much more dangerous, much dirtier. The air was much dirtier. It felt rough, you know, like mm-hmm. New York in the 80s. It was like I felt mm-hmm. endangered. Um, in 2016, man, we walked all over the city, didn't have any trouble, got lost, you know, walking through random neighborhoods, just sort of like waiting, you know, come on, I'm a mm-hmm. tourist for sure, right? Um, Mm -hmm. but we didn't have any trouble at all. And, and I was, the air quality was way better. So I don't know Mm -hmm. what happened if it was just a good time of year to be there, you know, weather wise or something. Um, but the other thing I noticed that was interesting, and I don't know if this is true or, you know, just my perception, but I felt like it was very quiet. Mm, I I know. Yeah. yeah, I know it's high altitude, right? What are you like Mm -hmm. 4,000 feet or 5,000 feet or something? It's pretty, it's for a city. It's quite high altitude. Yeah. Um, Do you know what it is in meters? How high you are? (laughs) Oh, no, don't worry about it. But but it's, it's relatively high. And I was just thinking like, well, maybe sound doesn't travel 
the way I expect it to, or I, mm-hmm. I don't know, but it felt quiet and clean. And um, yeah, as you say, very vibrant. Um, I, I, you know, I've only been in Mexico City those two times, but I've been all over Mexico, probably. Mm-hmm. I mean, I did a trip nine months uh, going from um, Ciudad Juarez down, mm-hmm. you know, all the way through Chiapas into Guatemala all over in the Barranca del Cobre in uh, Chiapas, or not Chiapas, in mm-hmm. uh, Chihuahua, uh, Zacatecas, and, you know, it was, it was a great trip. Amazing. Um, it's strange for me, I, you know, having traveled so much in Mexico and had so many fantastic experiences with Mexicans, who I agree, I, I've found Mexicans to be incredibly happy. Um mm-hmm. Looking, as you say, looking for a good time, optimistic, um, despite serious issues, obviously. Mm -hmm. It's hard for me to square that with the way Mexico's presented in the news with all the beheadings and the, you know, not just crime. Obviously, there's crime everywhere to one degree or another, but there seems to be... um, a very, uh, I don't know, developed capacity for cruelty. Mm. Is is that, do you think there's something in Mexican history or culture? Like you mentioned the Inquisition, right? Um, right. Obviously, Mexico's had a, a lot of cruelty in its past, uh, generally mm-hmm. being the victim of the cruelty from the Spaniards and the Americans and, and you know, Catholicism and all this. Mm. Um, is there something about the Mexican character that allows that kind of like, I'm going to, you know, peel the skin off your face before I kill you kind of thing? Or do you think that's just the drug trade? So a really interesting question, because if you go, for example, to Mexico's Museum of Anthropology and you have all these different halls you go, for example, to the Aztec Hall, although they didn't call themselves the Aztecs, they were the Mexicas. But you go there and you can see you see examples of their art and you see sculptures like this one, this deity called Shipetotec, which means our flayed lord. It's basically, it represents some guy who is wearing another human being's skin. As a, as, a, as a dress, right? Because that's what they, they used to do. They used to choose some victim that they will sacrifice to the gods during the springtime, and they will then, you know, skin him alive or something, and then the priest will use that skin, and it was supposed a representation of uh, the rebirth of, birth, of, of spring, the rebirth of nature, uh, which was so important. Uh, so you see that, and you see also, well, the atrocities that happened also during the, the, the Spanish colony, the Inquisition and all of that, and also the, how they would treat uh, slaves, they would treat uh, the, the Native Americans, and also the, 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 African, the Africans that they were brought here to work on, on plantations and all that. And you see then the, the, the atrocities that were committed in the 19th century, 
in the in the Mexican Revolution, a lot of things, horrible things happened in the Mexican in Mexican Revolution. Mo many of our quote unquote heroes, like Pancho Villa, for example, Pancho Villa was a murderer. You know, Pancho Villa was a, a, a rapist. Pancho Villa will, will, will come to a town, kill all the men, hang all the women, hang the children, <laughs> and this is the guy we have in our in our sculptures, right? So then. You see that, and you will mention. Well, no wonder people uh, now they idolize uh, the drug lords. You know, like El Chapo Guzman and and all the others guys, the guys from the Cartel of Sinaloa, whatever. Uh, maybe it's something that has always been here. This uh, high capacity for brutality, and at the same time, the high capacity for beauty. Like getting back to the Aztecs, you have, uh, if you look in the in the few remains of literature that survived the arrival of the Spaniards, you see that the, the poetry of the, the Aztecs was very beautiful. They will talk about flowers. Uh, they will talk about the song of the birds, you know, something that you will, almost you will say was well, too, I, I don't know, hoity-toity or, you know. Not not something that you will spend from a manly man civilization. No, yeah. like the the greatest aspiration for a for a fierce Aztec warrior who will have the honor of dying in battle was to have his soul transport transported to by butterflies, and be transformed into a hummingbird. So they will go and and suck the nectar from flower to flower. That's that's mm. what they wanted, right? Mm. I don't know. Maybe we could draw a parallel with that movie, uh, Apocalypse Now. Remember how Marlon Brando tells uh, the other guy, the other actor, how the first time he went to Laos or Cambodia and he will see all these, these villages of people who love their children and laugh with them. And they, they will see how brutal they could be cutting the, chopping the hands off of those, those same children. And, you know, he couldn't understand that, but maybe there's something to that about people who have this passion for life and that passion for life leads you to great displays of compassion and there's great displays of love, but at the same time, great displays of brutality. Mm. Yeah, interesting question. I Actually, I hadn't thought about uh, the pre-colonial Mexican history. When I asked you the question, I was sort of starting with the Spaniards and, you know, um, is Octavio Paz, is he a Mexican writer? Yes, he was our only um, Nobel Prize winner of literature. Right. Yeah, he was right. a poet. He also was a, a, a diplomat. I think I read an essay that he wrote, or maybe it was a chapter in one of his books a long time ago. Someone in Mexico recommended it to me. It was about uh, the word chingar and how <laughs> it's like the most important word in Mexican Spanish because it mm. it means to rape. Um, it means all these horrible things. Yeah. And the worst thing you could say to a Mexican is chinga tu madre or something. Exactly. Right. But like if you say that, you have a fight. You will always have a fight. Right. No Mexican mm -hmm. will not fight you if you say that to him. Um right. But on the other hand, like you call your friends, you know, like what's the word? Eres un chingón. Yeah, right. right. Like, like that's yeah. cool. You're a cool guy. And, you know, like so it's this word that works in so many different ways. 
Right. And I guess you could argue in English, fuck has similar connotations, Mm -hmm. um, but not as intense, right? But you can say you're a fucking idiot or, you know, you're you're a really smart fuck, you know, like it goes different ways. But his point was that it's the, the history of rape in Mexico that gave that word so much power, that the the experience of the native Mexican men was one in which they were brutalized, dominated and then had to watch the, the foreigners take their right. women. You know, Um, and so there's this sort of deep sense of masculine humiliation in Mm. the Mexican character, which can make Mexican men very dangerous. One thing I felt when I was traveling is I always felt safe and I really enjoyed the people. But if I was in a situation where people were drinking a lot of alcohol and guys started getting drunk. I always mm-hmm. got out of there because right. I feel like, a, you know, some of these guys, they get drunk and it, it gets wild. Like there's mm-hmm. no limit as to what can happen. Yeah. They feel that you are giving them uh, the stink eye or something. Right. And they will start with, come this way. Yeah. Um, right. <laughs> what are you looking at? at you know? And then that could, like you say, quickly escalate. And maybe like 50 or 70 years ago, Someone will uh, bring up a knife, and now they will bring out um, a gun, or maybe they will just walk out of walk out of the establishment and return thirty minutes later. A whole band full of guys, you know, with uh, machine guns, and they will just level the whole establishment. You know, it, it's like that. So yeah. explosive. It's out of control. Do, do you mm-hmm. feel like before you're probably not old enough to really remember, but where was this energy going before the, the whole drug thing? You know, like when I was traveling in Mexico in the eighties, there were no massacres like that. Right. I mean, it was, there was shit happening between the government, you know, and uh, rebellions in Chiapas, mm-hmm. for example, before the Zapatistas right. even, right. um, but but there wasn't the, I don't remember this kind of like um, just bloodthirsty criminal behavior in mm-hmm. Mexico. Well, I mean, there there's this whole chapter in Mexican history that has been like erased by officialdom, which is the 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 1970s, which is called here La Guerra Sucia, the Dirty War, which oh, was yeah. a struggle between the the government. And all these uh, guerrilla groups and all these groups of uh, of rebels and, and r- rural teachers that will be, you know, teaching uh, Marxist-Leninist doctrines in among the peasants in the state of Guerrero, for example. Guerrero has always been uh, a very violent state. This is where Acapulco is, right? Which Acapulco has become something of a weird situation because it's still supposed to be a touristic attraction but a lot of people stay away from it because they know that it's kind of like controlled by 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 the, by the gangs but anyway so we have that and also getting back to the idea of what happened you know uh i guess back in the 80s there was this there was this unspoken agreement between the government and the cartels like saying okay you you do your thing we're not really going to stop you, 
but just be sure to not involve the civilians. You know, if you're going to, you want to have a war between you two, well, have at it, but just like uh, keep it down, you know? And that kind of like unequal truce lasted, but then it was kind of like dissolved in, in by the end of the 80s, you know? Uh, whereas this guy, Caro uh, Quintero, I guess, he, he, he started to murdering people he also murdered, uh, uh, I, get, I think, a, a member of the American uh, DEA. Mm. And he also murdered um, a member of the church. This, uh, this, it was a cardinal. Miguel Romero. No, Romero was from Salvador. Oh, Another okay. Another guy. Mm-hmm. Okay, Another yeah. guy. So that's when that's things cool. started to kind of like fall apart, right? And then... There's a whole situation with Colombia, right? Colombia was, um, and back in the 80s, you remember how in, in Hollywood movies, the, the Colombians were the baddies, were the bad guys. You know, the Arnold Schwarzenegger will go and the, he will kick the ass of the Colombians. Yeah. And back with the day of uh, Pablo Escobar, you know, he was like the number one uh, drug lord in the world. But then he's like uh, killed. And the, the Colombian cartels go into this array, but there's this still this market, right? This need for for the, this demand for for drugs from the U.S. And guess that's when the the Mexicans stepped in and said, "Well, you know, why don't we go and and, and supply the cocaine that the, the the gringos want?" And I guess that's the 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 rise of new cartels, new organizations, and. I think that one of the things that happened, Chris, is this situation when governments want to go against uh, organizations that they don't want, like uh, terrorists or drug lords, and they always think, well, let's go and cut the head of the snake. Let's go after the leader. Let's go after after Osama bin Laden, you know? Right. And they go and they kill Osama bin Laden and think, well, that there's that, you know, no more Al Qaeda. But what happens? Obviously, the organization remains, and and the lieutenants or someone wants to get in, in control. And always the new guy tends to be more ruthless and more violent than the older guys. The older guys they just want to do business, but the new guys they tend to be more radicalized. So you end up with groups that are more violent, they're not following the old truces or the old ways of not involving the, the civilians. Meanwhile, the, the governments keep doing the same thing, is going after the leaders, going after the leaders, and, and this cycle keeps repeating itself ad infinitum, and it will be keep repeating itself because there's an endless, endless supply of poor people, young Mexicans who know they have no future, they have no way to make a decent living, and they see these guys with their gold chains and their silk shirts and, you know, the women they pick up, and they say, man, I'd rather have, you know, some of that for five years, you know, or maybe even less, than live a lifetime of poverty. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. And there's you add that to the endless supply of the drug and the endless mm-hmm. demand for the drug. And like, right. there's no way you're going to stop that river. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's incredible. Um, before I forget, I, I wanted to mention and thank you uh, publicly here for your work on that ebook that we did together. Uh, oh, right. And when I say we did together, I mean you did, and I, you know, slapped my name on it. But uh, what was that like, that, that experience? Because you coordinated volunteers who did all the transcribing and mm-hmm. um, you chose the material that was included. And I mean, you did the cover that made me look like some kind of 70s porn star, which I got to say, man, I think I told you at the time when you sent that to me, I looked at that and I thought, yeah, that's what I see when I look in the mirror. I know that's <laughs> not what other people see. <laughs> but I, I mean, I, you know, I came of age in the seventies, you know, Playboy <laughs> magazine was an important source of information for me. So yeah, I saw that with the stash. I'll post that uh, on the the webpage for this so people can see what I'm talking about, but that was really nicely done. So thank you for that. No, thank you. Well, just a clarification. Oh, yeah, I made the, the cover for that book. Oh, right, uh, but you the, did the other book. I did the other book. You and did the uh, consciousness book, and right. And Erin was the one who, who managed the content of the sex book. She, she was the one who, who picked the conversations. I was the one, the one to pick the, 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 the material for the drug books. I felt uh, that that resonated more with me, more with... Uh, my ideas about, you know, I'm in full support of legalization of all these substances and of adult, adults' rights to, you know, explore their all con- their consciousness the way they see fit, not only for political reasons, but also for my own uh, journey in the study of, uh, you know, esoteric subjects, paranormal subjects. Uh, in, in the world of UFOs, if you don't end up uh, reading some of Terence McKenna's material, you're you're doing it wrong. So yeah, I, I, uh, it was an interesting experience, right? You know, going and trying to pick up volunteers, and then trying to keep the volunteers from from actually doing the work. You know, coordinating that, reading the material, and then the most difficult part, obviously, was trying to determine, okay, what should I edit, because otherwise we're going to end up end up with a you know. 600-page book that uh, nobody's going to read, trying to keep it in subject because, well, this is tangentially speaking. So (laughs) sometimes the conversation will be to things that are not really about the topic of the book in particular, even though it was interesting. And trying to see, okay, maybe I need to keep this joke because this joke is a segue for this other thing that I really want to include. It is Mm. important. I really, really love that process. You know, I think just, uh, it was a good experience for me, like being in the editing kind of the the, the, the situation. And then obviously I had a, a blast the, designing the, the, the covers. At first there was a, a bit of a snafu because uh, we originally thought of, of calling the book uh, Tangentially Tripping, right? Mm. But then you decide, no, well, let's go because it's going to be very difficult trying to keep that tangentially and then finding some kind of like a birth that depicts the other subjects. Like, well, I'm going to say tangentially fucking or tangentially what? Yeah. Uh, so we decided, okay, let's go call them talking drugs, talking sex. And we went with that. 
And yeah, I wanted to have fun with the, with the sex one because you always bring about your goddamn AVN award <laughs> every time you have the, the, the chance to. So I say, okay, okay, you want to be an AVN winner? Let's let's bring that up. <laughs> That's good. It's my only award, man. <laughs> you know, uh, I love. You also have your motherfucker award. Yeah, that's true, but you know, I was a producer. I gave it to myself. That's not the same. Uh, yeah, it's funny when you see people. You know, the, you know, I get these pitches all the time. People want to be on the podcast for you know from a publicist or something. Everyone's an award-winning filmmaker, an award-winning author, an award-winning designer, whatever. It's like what what award? You know, right. like let's get specific here. You know, like I'm an award-winning actor. Like, what the fuck does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, that was fun. You mentioned the paranormal. I wanted to get into that, but before I do, and maybe this is a segue. I, I know Red Pill Junkie. Mm-hmm. Um, before I even knew who you were, I I knew you as Red Pill Junkie on on social media, and I have mm-hmm. to say, like, you know, you and I met each other through the podcast. I don't know how you heard of the podcast, but I heard of you because. Every time, like, I would see these comments on different episodes, and your comments are so fucking insightful and intelligent, and it was just like, you know, I get lots of comments. People say, hey, good edit, good episode. I like that, blah, blah, blah. But yours are like, I like the way he talked about this, and when you asked him that, and then he mentioned this other thing, and it's like you're you're really focused. Um, mm-hmm. You know, do you listen to podcasts when you're doing your design work or, or, or how, how, do, how does it fit into your life? I used to listen to podcasts uh, a whole lot more back when I had a, a, a regular job, right? You, you know, it's a great way to, to make your commute more endurable. And, you know, talking about living in Mexico City, we're talking about commutes that are last, if you're lucky, like just one hour you know, mm-hmm. going to the office and one hour just to return if you're lucky. So there's two hours of, of time that you can spend away listening to podcasts. And then if you're in the office, the, the best thing that could happen to me was that I could sit alone doing my thing. Uh, I used to work in, in interior design, you know, furniture design. So I will work uh, with the computer drafting AutoCAD plans or 3D models or, or renderings. And the best thing will be you know, just to listen to the podcast while I'm, you know, working around my computer, no interruptions, you know, the occasional uh, visit to the, from the boss and say, hey, how are you doing? Fine. <laughs> are you done yet? No. <laughs> you know, like, go away. Now that I'm working as a freelancer, uh, yeah, I try to listen to podcasts not as often when I'm doing the, the, the design stuff. But obviously, when I'm doing the other stuff, which is blogging, because I'm also a blogger for for other uh, websites, obviously you can't listen to people, you know, talking because you get too distracted. Yeah, I can't even listen to music when I'm, you know, writing. But yeah, uh, I don't know. I guess a friend of mine asked me that, and and it's for me it was a progression from being a, a consumer of content to being a producer of content because that's why how I started in, in, in this uh, little niche of the, of the internet, you know, leaving comments on other people's websites, you know, I'm thinking mm-hmm. 
the best thing that could, that that I could do was to tell people, you know, this thing that you mentioned in your in your, in your episode reminded me of this book that you should check out. You know, so I, I love the idea that I was fulfilling the role of a paranormal uh, or fortean matchmaker. You know, like leading people to content that I felt will be useful to them. And then sooner or later, you get more involved, more involved. Uh, uh, like I said, uh, I became a blogger. And then some, some, some of my friends asked me to be in their podcast. And then, well, I guess I guess so. I'll go and join the podcast, you know. And and, and sooner you 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 start to become something of a of a quote unquote public persona, you know. And yeah, and and I have kept the the, the nickname, which I coined because uh, back in college I read Carlos Castaneda's books, which had a huge impact in me i don't know why I, I guess many of the things that he said resonated with me and then i watched the movie the matrix in 1989 by the wachowskis they were the wachowskis brothers back then and now they're yeah. the wachowskis sisters well that's that are they both have they both transitioned oh yeah oh yeah. i i heard that one of them had i didn't know both of them had no both of them yeah transition transition <sighs> oh my god Wow, and and when I saw the movie, it blew it blew my mind because I, I not only because it's a really good cyberpunk uh, uh, movie movie with a lot of action and a good, good acting, uh, nice effects, and a good backstory, but also because I saw a lot of parallels between Castaneda's philosophy and the story. To me, it was clear that. Neo was like Carlos, so a guy who was in search of, of a master. And that's Morpheus, which is like Don Juan, you know, this yaki uh, brujo that uh, Carlos Castaneda allegedly found uh, when he was uh, anthro an anthropology student at UCLA in the 1960s. And the red pill to me was like uh, Mescalito, the peyote that mm. uh, Don Juan used with Carlos so he could like open himself to the perception of the real nature of the universe, which in the movie is like all these lines of code raining down and creating the, this, uh, you know, the simulation run by the machines. And in Carlos Castaneda's philosophy is all these lines of energy that come in from the universe and that creating uh, our reality. And later, I realized that all the maybe the reason why these resonated with me so strongly is because the Wachowskis were talking about one of the oldest stories in the Western world, which is the story of Gnosticism. You know, they were talking mm -hmm. basically the, the, the Gnostic idea that the world we live in is just an illusion. That is run by you know intelligence intelligences that are trying to control mankind, and you know and people need to wake up in order to to be free, right? And like I said, this is a story that has been told over and over again, gets new interpretations. I guess one of the newest interpretations of this is uh, with American writer Philip K. Dick, right? He who was the one who inspired the matrix in the first place with his uh, sci-fi novels and i mean even you man when you were talking about uh describing corporations like these 
living entities or non-living entities that are controlling the world, that's pure Gnostic. You know, you might as well call companies archons that are, you know, in the service of the demiurge. You know, the demiurge is in, in, in the Gnostic philosophy is the false god that created the world. Uh, but it's uh, it's kind of like math, and that's the reason that the world is kind of like a prison. Mm. So the Gnostics believed that the false world was created by archons? Was- yeah, something like that, that uh, the archons were like these minions of the Demiurge, and the Demiurge was this, uh, the son of the real world. Like, I guess they call, him, call it Sophia. Hmm. But it it became mad, and he and the demiurge believed that he was the real god ah. to prove that he created the world, right. right? But to the Gnostics, the idea is to recognize that the world is uh, this world is not the real world. This world is just a prison or an illusion, and the the knowledge of this, the gnosis, is the is the key that will set you free. Right. Whereas Castaneda and Don Juan, in in my understanding, they would have said that uh, the natural world is real, mm-hmm. but the world of beliefs, the world that's created by culture, is largely false. Right. Right. Yeah, but there's also in in, in like in the big corpus of Castaneda's books. And, and I mean, there's the four main books, uh, Teachings of Don Juan, uh, Separate Reality, Journey to Exland, Tales of Power, which is like the main books of the, his philosophy. But then he kept churning and churning books and, and his story became more and more convoluted. At, a, at one point, Don Juan tells Carlos that, yeah, the world is kind of controlled by these uh, non-human entities that they feed off of our emotions, you know, and that's why, you know, every time you get angry or get sad, you're just like feeding these intelligences and things Mm. like that. Uh, So that furthering the the idea of, of, of the Gnostics and even nowadays, uh, if you, uh, talk to some people who are interested in ufology, they will say, yeah, you know, the, the aliens are like keeping this farm that is the planet earth because they feed all of our negative energy energies, you know? So, you know, there, there's, there's that recursive Hmm. idea. How did you get into is, I know you're into the sort of study of the paranormal. Uh, Would you say UFOs are the main focus of your interests or is that just part of a, a broader um interest i can't i think it's first to say that ufos were my my gateway drug <laughs> into this this whole world shebang you know i'm i'm a i was born in 1973 you know and I, i'm a i'm a child of the 80s right so in the 80s you have movies like uh spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Third Kind. Well, that actually mm. was released in 1978. But there you have ET. You have you know yeah. Star Wars. So the idea of visits from another planet really really appealed to me, and I kept with that. And then in Mexico in the 90s there was a big flap of UFOs that started 
in July of 1991, there was, remember, there was this total eclipse that happened and Mexico was in the path of totality. And there were a few people who claimed that during the actual eclipse, they saw this object like hovering the city, you know, and, and that was the start of a lot of reports of UFOs. And to me, that was totally fascinating. I will, I will listen to guys like Jaime Maussan showing these really crappy videos on, on, on national television say, and almost like telling us, yeah, I mean, the aliens are about to reveal themselves and it's going to be a new dawn of mankind, a new era. And obviously that never happened. <laughs> and what I say UFOs are my gateway drug is because sooner or later you start to read more and more and you, you become interested in, in, in other stuff and you start to see correlations between UFOs and, and other subjects. Like, for example, uh, near-death experiences, uh, psychedelic trips, DMT, DMT trips. Uh, poltergeist activity even, you know, there's a lot of close encounter cases that, you know, also are involving what people will call poltergeists. And you see yeah, that... Explain that. What is poltergeist? What does that mean? Well, poltergeist activity is when sometimes uh, there is activity reported in a household where, you know, there will you hear strange knocks on the walls or on the windows, you will hear like uh, sometimes uh, discarnate voices whispering or something. And sometimes it's even more dramatic. You will see like objects flying around, mm -hmm. you know, like uh, dishes or, 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 plant, or you know, uh, uh, plant pots or whatever. And just like in the movie Poltergeist, you know, the produced by Steven Spielberg. But obviously, if you talk to a ghost investigator, they will say, yeah, that's uh, ghost activity. Uh, but a strange thing is that there's that kind of activity is also reported with people who are not uh, uh, ascribing to a ghost uh, interpretation. You know, they, they, they saw some weird thing in the skies or maybe they had an actual, you know, close encounter and they saw, you know, beings coming out of the craft. And then later they keep, reporting these manifestations in their house. Mm. Yeah. And so wh where do you come down on, on the, I mean, maybe this is the wrong question to ask you, but like, uh, how do you feel these recent films that were released by the defense department? Mm. Um, I saw you commenting online that, you know, those have been out for years now, but I guess it's the first time the defense department acknowledged their veracity, right? Right, although probably it's not the first time that the American government has uh, authenticated UFO material. I mean, they've been doing the, that since the 50s, right? And saying, well, you know, we've analyzed this video or, 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 or this film, and we conclude that, you know, it's a real UFO in the sense that we don't know what the hell it is, right? Right. Uh, and yeah, though some of those videos were leaked by someone back in 2007, right? So they were making the rounds and you could find them on YouTube. But obviously nobody were paying much attention to them because if you actually, you know, analyze the videos, they're kind of crappy. You know, there's these blobs in a black and white grainy video that lasts only seconds. 
you, you don't understand what the dials mean, you know, because we are you you and I are no are no navy pilots. We don't understand, you know, the yeah. what the numbers indicate. We don't understand the dynamics behind what these objects, you know, is allegedly you know doing uh, while while was being tracked by by uh, by the the pilot. But then came this uh, bombshell in December of 2017. This New York Times article uh, describing this secret uh, Pentagon program that was studying UFO encounters, which was obviously not a surprise for people in ufology because we, all, we knew that the American government has always been interested in this activity but they're always being lying to the public, saying, no, 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 we stopped We stopped studying UFOs when we closed uh, Project Blue Book in the 1960s. Mm. And, and we concluded that there, there was no reason to study them, that they, were not, they didn't represent a threat to the United States and yada, yada, yada. But then these videos were backed by the testimony of... of these pilots, you know, who were one of them was already retired from the Navy, commanded David Fravor, and he said, yeah, yeah, I, I saw this thing, you know, this object that looked like a tic-tac, that was his description, and that performed maneuvers that are just impossible from our understanding of physics. Like it was an altitude of, I don't know, 50,000 feet, and then dropped in almost like at sea level in a manner of you know, less than a second, which is like right. impossible. More interesting to me is the fact that this guy Fravor tells that uh, at one point he and he and uh, the other plane were going to reconvene in what they call uh, a cap point, which is like a, a predisposed reunion point when they're doing these maneuvers. And this interesting thing to remember is that that cap point is unknown by the pilot uh, before he goes, you know, on their plane. They, they, they are informed of the cap point after they are airborne. And according to Fravor, when they went to the cap point, the object was already waiting for them there. Yeah, yeah. It's like, and, okay. and that object was picked up by the radar as well. So it wasn't just the right. pilot's observations. The, this was all correlated by the radar operators back on shore. Yeah. yeah. The problem is that we haven't seen the radar da data. It's still, you know, classified. Mm. And according to the stories uh, that have been leaked out of this, uh, some people came in, you know, Navy or, oh, sorry, Air Force uniforms, and they, you know, gather all the recordings and they took off. And nobody knows where, where the, the, the radar data that was taken by the, you know, USS Nimitz and the other uh, vessels they recorded because they were not, we're not talking about just one object. It was, some people said, said there was a whole swarm of them, you know, right. Right. <laughs> of these things. Uh, and they also say that there are, there's even higher resolution or better videos that were recorded by, 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 by the planes, cameras, but we haven't seen them. We've just seen these crappy, you know, seconds short uh, videos that now they have been authenticated by the Pentagon. Why they decided to do this now when the, the Navy had already said, yeah, those are 
real videos of UFOs. We don't know what they are, but yeah, those videos are real. Why they chose this date in particular, we don't know. Maybe it's because they thought, well, maybe people will, won't, won't uh, pay, pay attention to that now that they, everybody is obsessed with the coronavirus. But everybody, you know, every news outlet were saying, oh, my God, UFOs are real. And, 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 and the Pentagon confirmed it. Yeah. So we don't know what's going on. And if you, there's the, depending on, on, on who you talk it feels like someone is trying to run some kind of agenda, you know, with these, um, some people call them limited handouts of slowly revealing information uh, very, very gradually. And there's also this guy, Tom DeLong, who is the one who, who, who kind of like was behind these leaks uh, he started an organization called To the Stars, it's To the Stars Academy of Arts and Science, which is a, a kind of like weird thing itself. It's almost like a like a mix between, not even a labradoodle, because it's a mix between a, a Great Dane and a Chihuahua. Because <laughs> on the one hand, they call themselves a, an entertainment company, so they're going to release all this entertainment material, books and films and whatever. And on the other hand, they call themselves uh, a technology company. They want to be a cons- they, they, they want to be a consultant for for the government, and they even announced that they arranged uh, a contract with the army, so they could so the army would analyze these quote unquote UFO fragments that Tom DeLong and his friends have managed to gather around to try to see if these materials, these metamaterials, I'd like to call them, have some properties that could be used by the U.S. government in order to, I don't know, enhance their weapons or their, you know, defense systems, you know, maybe making... I don't know, uh, cloaking devices for tanks right. you right. know, or maybe. So they, anti- claim, they mm-hmm. claim that they found like wrecked UFOs. That's where they got these materials. That's a little bit more complicated like that. Obviously, in the popular imagination, there's always the Roswell crash, right? Everybody talks Roswell, Roswell, Roswell. And the idea that they they managed to recover a crashed UFO or whatever. But along the history of ufology, there's been uh, cases where apparently these objects seep out uh, material, almost like like they're leaking, you know? Mm. And and, and the material falls to the floor and it's kind of like slack, like melted metal, right? And They're just emptying um, their toilets at high altitude. <laughs> maybe, maybe. So what's interesting is that some people have managed to, you know, recover these materials, and there have been scientists who have analyzed the materials. One of those scientists is uh, Dr. Jacques Vallée, who is the one that I, is one of the persons that I admire the most in this field. I don't know, you, do you remember the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind? Yeah. Okay, so the the character of Lacombe, who was played by the fr- French director 
Francois Truffaut, you know, that at one point in the movie, he is like gesturing to the UFOs, Ale, Ale, Ale. That, guy, that character was directly uh, inspired by this guy, Jacques Vallée, you know? Mm. So Jacques Vallée has been studying UFOs for decades, and he's one of the few ufologists or, or researchers who has actual good credentials. He is, uh, he's an astronomer. He's also a, a computer scientist. He's a venture capitalist. I mean, he was behind... I mean, one of the reasons that we're talking here using the internet is because of him. He helped design the ARPANET back mm. in the day. And he was also involved with the Stanford Research Institute, who was not, also, not only involved with these uh, the new technologies, you know, the development of the mouse, the, the mouse that we use for computers. They were also uh, involved in this program uh, of... Uh, the, the so-called psychic spy program that was run by, by, mm. by the government, you know, mm. uh, Stanley Krippner knows him. Sounds like oh. they travel in the same circles. Obviously. Yeah. Uh, Jacques Ballet has released um, his memoirs uh, in, in a four volume uh, series of books called forbidden science, which are like journals. I, to me, they're now they're my most, their most uh, predilected or my, my favorite UFO books because it's it's not only about about these things that I'm uh, so passionate about, but it's also he is a, a good chronicler of, of the times he lived in. So mm. he talks about, uh, for example, when he was a student at La Sorbonne in Paris, you know, and he witnessed the student riots in 1968 when he returned to France and then he went to America and he was in, in contact with all these, you know, celebrities like J. Allen Hynek and people in, 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 in other uh, aspects. And also all, because he was uh, sta- based in Silicon Valley, he was part of that technological revolution that happened mm. you know, in the 70s. Yeah. He was using email in 1973, this guy. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so and yeah and and getting back to Stanley, he mentions Stanley a couple of times. Oh really? Oh okay. yeah. So yeah, so we I, we know for certain certain that he, they met, they have crossed paths. But getting back to Valet and the study of these materials, he discovered that uh, it's not like these materials are are made of uh, unobtainium. You know, they're not uh, some material that is outside. The, the the chemical chart uh, table of uh, periodic table right but they are not also made of common materials what they discovered is that the isotopic ratio of the metals it it's clear that they were not uh, that they didn't uh, appear naturally on earth it almost, he says that it almost feels like these materials were, his words are that they were re-engineered at the molecular level. And people has, have asked him, okay, can you do that with our technology? And said, yeah, but it will cost millions of dollars. So why would you do it? And we don't even know why these, the properties of these materials, you know, what they are used for. Hmm. And I remember I, I was interviewing him uh, on a podcast, and I had this flash of inspiration, and I told, uh, I asked him, okay, Dr. Valet, does this 
could, could this imply that we are dealing with some kind of intelligence or agency or, you know, entity that is capable of transforming energy into matter and matter into energy instantly? And he said, yeah, that's exactly what, what this seems to indicate. So if that is true, then we're not, we're not really talking about aliens coming from another, another planet, right? We're talking about something that could manifest into our world in whatever you know, shape or form they would like. And once they finish their business, you know, they just... Almost like a video game, right? You know, you're playing a video game and you, when you need to have a gun, you know, the video game will provide that gun using zeros and ones. And then you stop using the gun, you know, and you, you turn off your, your Xbox. Where does the gun, gun go, you know? Mm. So it, it all, it's almost like that. It, it, and it's also when you're talking about this energy into matter, matter into energy, we're talking about alchemical transmutation, you know? Yeah, but isn't, I mean, we transform matter into energy every time we drive in our cars or, or light a fire, right? I mean, you know, yeah, just being alive, we're doing it. Yeah, but transforming energy into matter, that's a whole different ballgame. Mm-hmm. We can do that using very complex, sophisticated machines like the Large Hadron Collider. And it takes a hell of amount of energy just to, you know throw these uh, protons together in the, in the, ex, in the accelerator, I don't remember, the particle accelerator right. to create other types of exotic matter that only lasts, you know, like fractions of a second. I don't know yeah. what's the energy bill for the LH, the large <laughs> in terms of, I, I, I'm betting that those, those tests, tests aren't cheap. Yeah, yeah, it's not running on solar panels. I don't think. <laughs> no, no, yeah. or gasoline. Yeah. Um, so, so what's your what's your feeling? Where do you have a? Are you agnostic on the ultimate question of whether UFOs represent some sort of alien intelligence, or do you think we're living in a in a simulator? Or you know, where? What's your feeling about the nature of reality? it's an easy question right an easy one yeah yeah uh the problem with the world of ufology is that they get so caught up in trying to to explain like the origin of this phenomenon and and there is a movie that i really like i always forget the title but it's it's a it's it's a fictional encounter between marilyn monroe Albert Einstein, Joe, DiMa- Joe DiMaggio, and this guy, McCarthy, you know? So Marilyn Monroe goes to Albert Einstein's room and say, oh, can I explain to you the theory of relativity? And uh, you can find the videos online, and, and it's very funny. But at one point, Einstein tells Marilyn, because Marilyn's telling him, telling him, well, I really don't understand all these questions, but if, if people like you are telling me that this is the way the world is, you know, then I'll believe you. And Einstein tells her, well, that's kind of like useless because I can tell you that the moon is made out of sand. Do you believe me? And say, yeah, of course. Well, I made that up. You know, the moon is not made out of sand. The moment that you like say, I believe UFOs are X, 
what you're doing is you're drawing a line in the sand and saying, this is my belief, and I will defend my position against anyone who disagrees with me. And you see that over and over again with people who think, no, UFOs are, you know, beings from other planets and they're coming here because they want to make, they want mankind to join the Galactic Federation and whatnot. Other people say, no, 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 UFO, the aliens are harvesting us for their evil genetic plan. So they're going to replace us for, for, for a race of clones, the hybrids that they're developing in secret underground bases and or, or people say, no, they're time travelers, or no, no, they are ultra-terrestrials, they're crypto-terrestrials, or even worse, you know, the, 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 the fundamentalist Christian will say, no, they're angels, or no, they're demons, and, you know, or mm. even though people say, no, 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 this is just uh, some mythology that the American government concocted in order to hide their secret experimental right. platforms. They're and weather the balloon. With it, yeah, exactly, a weather balloon, or, no, it's the, it was the... Uh, stealth fighter, you know, the, the CIA once said, you know, remember all those UFO sightings that happened in the 50s? That was us with the U-2 plane, which is kind of nonsense because the U-2 plane flies so high up, nobody can see, see it, see it yeah. with the naked eye, but they say, well, you know. So the problem with getting caught up with this is that uh, you forget the, the bigger questions, like Jack Ballet says, okay, let's forget about where UFOs come from and let's focus instead on what UFOs do, you know, what they are doing, how, um, how they are affecting our culture. And that's why he talks about this, um, he calls him a cultural thermostat, you know, something almost like a control system that is operated by the phenomenon that seems to be conditioning the human race toward that goal is difficult to ascertain, but it, it's obvious that uh, the UFO phenomenon seems to be behind many, if, if not all, of uh, the religions in the world. You know, if you study the religions of the world, many of them behind this start with some kind of like mystical experience of someone, you know, encountering beings from the sky or beings from other places. Uh, Mohammed having, you know, talking with the angel Gabriel. Joseph Smith having a, this night encounter with the angel Moroni on his bed, which is almost like identical to what people nowadays claim to, to experience with these uh, alien visitations. So that to me is more important or more interesting than trying to figure out where the hell the UFOs come from. Uh, and I also came to accept that uh, human consciousness plays a very important role into all of this. This is something that uh, materialist scientists will try to disagree because they want they want cookie cookie cutter answers. You know, people like people like the easy answers, right? People like this. Just people uh, people like to think. UFOs come from other planets, and Bigfoot is an undiscovered ape roaming in the Pacific Northwest. The Loch Ness Monster is a place you share, and, and you know, ghosts are the spirits of the death. Uh, and there are people like me who are trying to find this grand unified theory of the weird. You're thinking, well, no, this, all of this seems to be 
manifestation manifestations of consciousness. And even at this point, I'm not even sure if the UFO phenomenon is external to human consciousness or if it's just a manifestation of human consciousness. Maybe they're just like the like uh, our nightmares and our dreams that we are able to manifest, you know, into reality. Uh, but in the end, I, I, what I'm trying, to, I guess, trying to say, I know I'm kind of rambling, is uh, I, I think it's better to live with the uncertainty of right. not really trying to pin down what the UFO phenomenon is, just trying to study studying it in its totality, including the things that don't really pan out with your little neat interpretation of UFOs, because that's what uh, people tend to do. They think, oh, uh, UFOs are from other planets, therefore this case in which uh, the witness saw his dead grandmother inside of the saucer, uh, we're going to throw that into the basket bin because that's not useful to us. Right. You know? doesn't fit my paradigm. Exactly. But the, the thing about the phenomena being um, a projection of, of human consciousness, um, <clears throat> you know, I, I think I uh, resonate with that in a lot of ways. But the problem is when you have um, mass uh, phenomena, like, I don't know, five, seven years ago, maybe at the Chicago O'Hare airport, you remember right. there was like this something hovering right out there over the runway and mm -hmm. pilots saw it. They stopped the flights, the tower saw it, the people in the airport saw it. It was this mass sighting. Hundreds of people don't know each other, don't work together, have nothing to do with each other, except they were all there. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, the thing about UFOs that that's so interesting to me is, um, you know, you you know, I'm close with Stanley. I've spent a lot of time thinking about paranormal stuff, and I wouldn't mm -hmm. say I'm a scholar or anything, but I've certainly been exposed to it. I've read a lot, um, and you know, things like telepathy and um, uh, other sort of examples of paranormal. You have mm -hmm. some cases where some people claim they saw this or saw that or this has happened. Stanley had some some firsthand uh, experiences with things that that are inexplicable. Mm -hmm. But with UFOs, you have hundreds of people, you know, on the on the in the front page of the newspaper, like okay, four hundred people reported seeing this thing at O'Hare Airport yesterday. Holy shit! Nobody knows what it is. No one can explain it. You know, we talked to the Defense Department. They don't know what it is. The FAA doesn't know what it is. And then the next day, it's like, meanwhile, uh, you know, so-and-so is running for mayor and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and yeah, it's like, life just goes on. And, and it's like, but wait a minute. Like, I, it, it's, it breaks my brain a little bit, you know, that, that there's, there are these very clear, verified examples of something that does not fit into our reality. Right. And, yeah. and yet we just sort of go, yeah, well, there's that. But meanwhile, it's time for lunch, you know? Yeah. I, it's, I don't know. That's it, why, it, yeah, that's why Charles Fort, you know, like our, our patron saint of the weirdness, uh, coined the term, you know, or, or has his first book was uh, The Book of the Damned, because he used to talk about all these uh 
damned facts or damned experiences that were like swept away from the books of history. Like, yeah, we don't, people, historians don't really want to dwell too much about uh, reigns of frogs or apparitions of phantom ships, you know, or disappearances of, of people like vanishing in the air or time slips or people uh, encountering uh like uh, gargoyles, <laughs> right? These, but these things are reported. They happen all the time. But the, the, meanwhile, yeah, people need to pay the bills and need to pay attention to the quote-unquote real world. And that's why you know weirdos like me who live in the margins of society, we are outsiders, are the only ones who have the luxury to pay attention to it without our lives like you know falling apart. It's, this is kind of like a dangerous hobby, like. Because people can get obsessed very, very quickly, you know, and people who had a good job, who had a very stable, I don't know, Wall Street uh, employment or whatever, maybe they had a, a really weird encounter that, you know, obsessed them. And they start, uh, they go to the bookstore and they buy 20 different UFO books and they read it all on one sitting and they spend more and more time in these websites and meanwhile their marriage falls apart and then yeah. one day their boss says you know we are fired because you're not you're not focusing your work like you used to and and, and UFOs the paranormal is by, by nature very uh, anti-structure that's probably what, the, what people will call there's a guy who co- who wrote a book called uh, George Hansen, and he wrote a book called the, "The Trickster and the Paranormal." So he talks about the, the the figure of the trickster that has been noticed and revered by ancient cultures, you know, throughout history. They know that there are these tricksters, like Loki, for for the Vikings, or or um, I don't know Tezcatlipoca for the Aztecs. All these trickster deities that or entities that want to like run havoc with humanity. But it's not like they are evil necessarily, but it's just like there's there's a way to like keep us in our toes, like saying, "Hey, you know, remember that you don't know shit, right?" That's right. what Terrence McKenna will say. You know that the the UFO, there's a there's a wonderful uh, video of him giving a presentation in this uh, conference. Angels, angels and aliens. It happened in San Francisco, I think, in the 1990s or, or uh, early 2000s. And he's talking, yeah, okay, yeah. Whitley Strieber, who is a famous uh, abductee, you know, he wrote the book Communion, who was like a bestseller. And after that, he, his his career fell apart. You know, he ended up like selling his canning house, and he ended up uh, nowadays nobody will buy his books or nobody will print his books you know he he self-publishes but he has this he had this idea of this his encounter that he had with these non-human entities and Terrence McKenna will say well you know that encounter in an Amazonian tribe that will be like a no biggie you know that's it's for granted so I think that we as a society, now that everything is falling apart as we speak, right? Every single institution seems to be crumbling beneath uh, the hypocrisy that is being revealed more patently every single day. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen, but maybe we need, like I said, living with the uncertainty and, 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 and getting 
with getting accustomed to the fact that we really don't understand reality. To me, the importance of the UFO phenomenon is saying UFOs are real, therefore we don't really know what reality is. Right? <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's, that's what I was getting at. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that people go on with this sense of that they know what real life is, even when there's direct evidence that here's something that doesn't fit into that, right? Here's something that should make you question that. And yet most people, you know, that famous, I, I think it's famous. There's an anecdote about Jung and Freud talking right. about the paranormal. And mm -hmm. me, I'll, I'll tell it the way I remember it. And you tell me mm -hmm. if, if I'm wrong. Um, but they were talking about it. And this was a, a an issue that divided them. They were great friends at the time. But uh, Freud was basically a materialist. Whatever's here is here. You can see it. You can touch it. And Jung was talking about spiritual entities and so on. And they were sitting in Freud's library having this conversation. And Jung said, so what would you need? What would it take for you to um, acknowledge the, the possibility that there are spirits living among us? And Freud said, well, it would have to be, you know, scientifically, it would have to be something um, that happened when you called for it. It would have to, you know, like, for example, a loud noise in the bookshelf now. Mm -hmm. And it happened. <laughs> Right. And there was this big bang in the bookshelf and they sat there looking at each other for a few minutes. And then Freud said, well, you know, the weather's changed a lot recently, so it's probably an expansion of the wood, you know. So it's like even if you set the terms for what kind of evidence you need and you get that evidence still. And this is where it gets back to what you said about this being a projection of human consciousness. I think it, it's kind of a negative projection in a way, right? Because mm -hmm. human consciousness is so unwilling to abandon and, and incapable of expanding our sense of um, reality to incorporate these things that are that we that are beyond our understanding. Right? You know, we, even even people who think that they do that, you know, like so-called spiritual people, they mm -hmm. still come up with narratives. Right. right? To explain it. Yeah, to, to explain it and to remember it and to tell kids and, you know, to transmit knowledge of the unknowable, which is... Right. We, we think in the Western world that to explain something is to control it. You've said it right. plenty of times. Uh, modern, medicine, modern, modern medicine will acknowledge the placebo effect. They put it the label. Oh, well, we explain it, right? No, you, you explain shit. You just put a label there, but you don't explain the process of how the body or the mind is capable of healing the body, right? Right. So same with uh, stigmata, like saying, oh, yeah, we have the, the term stigmata, but you don't, can't explain how a, a religious mystic will manage to, I don't know, by his subconscious, create all these uh, wounds on his flesh that mimic the wounds of uh, Christ on the cross, you know? So Although, you know what's funny about that, the stigmata, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. often the the bleeding comes from the palms of the hands. Right, yeah. But Christ actually didn't have nails in his palms. The nails right. were in his wrists. Right, so, exactly. 
So it's the belief of the person. It doesn't, it has nothing to do with Christ. It's about the story mm -hmm. they've heard. Yeah. And I've often wondered, and I've said this on, on, on some podcasts when I've invited, that maybe that's what happened with people who claim to have been abducted by aliens and say, well, see, they put an implant in me. And that's why I know that I was abducted. I said, well, maybe that implant is some kind of stigmata. It's something that was manifested by your mind uh, and, and, and create something that you think gives validation to, to the narrative that you are using to explain your experience. Yeah. Yeah. I, this stuff is so interesting. I, I'm, you know, I wish I had 20 lifetimes to study everything that's interesting, but mm -hmm. hypnosis is, is another area that, you know, how the, right. how the mind is experiences things in ways that, you know, our consciousness doesn't incorporate or can't understand. Right. Right. I know, have you read John Mack's books? No, but uh, I know about his uh, his take on 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 the subject, and I know all the problems he had when when Harvard wanted to take out his his tenure, and even getting back to Jacques Vallée and his Forbidden History journals, he talks about meeting John Mack, and he talks about how he stressed. John Mack was like uh, they were in this social gathering in Mack's house and uh, Mack's wife made some kind of like uh, funny remark and, and Mack started to like barking at her, like mm. almost like chewing her head off, which was very uncomfortable to all the people. So, yeah, I know about his, his take on it, which was in a way much more interesting than what the other so-called abduction researchers were going with, which is, you know, uh, Bud Hopkins and, and David Jacobs saying, no, you know, the abductions are part of this plan by the evil aliens to kidnap humanity in order to extract our DNA, in order to create these alien-human hybrids because they are about to take over the Earth and so on and so forth. People like... Jack Vallée will say, wait a minute, that experience has also been described by many different ancient cultures, you know, the, fa the fairy lore of the Celtic countries. And there's a wonderful book written by, ah, uh, I don't remember his name. Uh, the, the fairy lore in Celtic country is, 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 is a book that is over 100 years old. It's highly recommended. Talks about all these, you know, abductions of the fairies, and how you will ne you sh never should eat the fairy food because then you're stuck in fairyland forever. And there, there are time dilations. Someone who goes and dances with the fairies like a couple of hours returns 50 years later to his village. Uh, so people like Valet says, well, this is part of the folklore. So how can we account for the aliens doing the same experiment over and over again, you know, and... When, yeah, are, funny. when are they going to finish their, their experiment? <laughs> exactly. It's funny how the aliens are like simultaneously like so advanced. We can't imagine their technology and so on. But they, they also like there's this sort of assumption of, of incompetence and stupidity, right. you know, right. 
Like if they're so advanced, they don't need to keep doing this over and over again. What? You know, what about, what do you think about this thing with, um, you know, where they find cattle with their like anuses surgically removed, mm-hmm. you know, this kind of thing. This seems to happen a lot or with like, you know, organs removed, but, but surgically and very strange um, harvesting kind of situation. Right, uh, and obviously, like uh, like in the UFO phenomenon, there may be different explanations. Like there may be a few of those cattle mutilations which may have been conducted by the government for maybe uh, they're done in in regions where they have dumped a lot of nuclear material, right? In in Indian reservations. Oh, that's hey, interesting. You know. We'll give you a ton of money if you like let us store all this, you know, radioactive material. And right. the will say, okay. But then how do you like track if there is some kind of like a spread of radioactivity that is becoming too dangerous? Well, you use maybe the cows as biosensors. So that's an explanation. But huh. obviously that doesn't encompass the totality of the phenomenon because there are cattle mutilations happening in other countries. There's a, f- a friend of mine, Chris O'Brien, who studied the cattle mutilation phenomenon, who wrote a thick book called Stalking the Hearth. And he found out something really interesting, which is that these sort of mutilations of cows don't happen in a country like India. In, and in India, we know that the cow is revered, Right. In India, they maybe they raise the cows, but not for the reasons that people raise the cows in a country like United States, where we use them for meat. And there's also a guy who is a friend of, of O'Brien, is David Perkins. Um, he's been studying this phenomenon for for longer than most. He he has come to his own particular theories, which I think are very interesting. To him, this is like a manifestation of Gaia like some kind of like reaction or rejection to our ways. Like, do you remember the name of the author of that book you always mention, Lives of the Cell? Lewis Thomas. Okay, so Lewis, Lewis Thomas was the guy who came up with the, the Gaia theory, right? And, uh, uh, no, no, he didn't come up with it, but he, he applied it to the cell and showed how the earth behaved like a cell. Um, yeah, no, the guy who came up with the Gaia theory was British. I don't remember his name right now. But anyway, go on with your point. I don't know if Powell, the guy, Powell's or, or the other British guy who came up with the term, he was interviewed one time and he said, well, the, the three things that Mother Earth hates the most are the three C's. Cows, cars, and chainsaws. what about leaf blowers man (laughs) well many things but the the things that uh, in the top five list of of mother (laughs) earth like things that she hates the most so Uh, maybe the cows is one way of you know yeah some kind of like energy to try to reject the way that we are destroying nature because we are with this obsession of raising cattle in order to keep our endless consumption of meat. I don't know. It's an interesting theory. 
And there's also, well, things that are happening in a place like uh, Skinwalker Ranch. I don't know if you've ever heard of, 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 of that term. Uh, okay, Skinwalker Ranch is a very interesting place. It's a property that is located in Utah that was first was owned by a group of ranchers, the Sherman family, and they had a lot, a lot of problems there, you know, a lot of weird things happening there, even including, you know, a giant wolf that came and, and when it started to attack their cattle, the father came with a, with a high-caliber gun and they shoot, sh- uh, shot the animal point blank and didn't do anything. So there's a lot of weird mythology coming around for that place. And then a guy by the name of Robert Bigelow uh, bought the ranch and he began an organization called uh, NEETS, the National Institute of Discovery Science. And that, yeah, they had a lot of cattle mutilation there. And, and I guess it's still unknown, like the reason. We, we, we do know that in some of these cases, the, the cuts done to the, to the animal seems to be done with, with, with things that couldn't be performed by, I don't know, natural predators, right? And there are also instances where they find the animal that seems to have been dropped from a, dis- from, from a high altitude. Uh, As to why, I don't know. Like I said, it depends on who you ask, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, have so you looked you- into, sorry, I was going to say, have you looked into crop circles? Yeah. And, and now I know a bunch of people have come forward and said that they've done it intentionally, mm-hmm. um, but that doesn't seem to explain the prevalence of it. I wonder, is it, how international is that? Have there been crop circles found in India, for example? Do you know? That's a good question. I, I know there have been crop circles found in South Korea. And, and let me point out, I am of the opinion that at this point, probably, you know, maybe most of all of the crop circles are man-made, right? But that doesn't mean that the crop circles are not mysterious in themselves for other reasons. Like, for example, people who make these crop circles have been interviewed, a few of them, and they say, well, you know, all of the sudden in the middle of the night, I woke up and I had this like urgency that I couldn't explain to go into the into a field and create a crop circle by myself, you know? <laughs> and then the next morning, he finds that there was a group of people gathered around who said, yeah, we were like chanting and we were like meditating because we were we wanted a crop circle to appear there. And and the design that chosen by by the the crop circle maker was the exact design that the people who were meditating were asking for. Hmm. And also the crop circle makers, they also claim to have weird things happening when they are doing this in the middle of the night, like weird fox that will suddenly be created and lights that will chase them away or time distortion. So once again, you know, human consciousness, like hmm. people say, well, if they weren't made by aliens, that, that doesn't interest me. I'm more interested in this because it's, you know, it's almost like these guys, these crop circle makers, also because they're kept anonymous, right? They, they, they don't disclose their 
their identity because they are breaking the law. You know, they are mm. going into somebody else's property and they are damaging uh, the crops. It's almost like they're performing some kind of like magic ritual, mm. right? And, and, and then comes, okay, what else is involved in this ritual? What else is involved in this dance, this interaction between the consciousness of the circle makers and, you know, and whatever else is that put the idea in their heads in the first place? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. These things are so much more subtle than the sort of surface narrative that that we, you know, we hear. Yeah. It's either an alien or it's bullshit. Well, it could be. There's a lot in between there. A lot in between, including even the possibility. Uh, Jacques Vallée also alluded, and, and he has, you know, dealings and 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 relationships with people deep into the government, right? And deep into the intelligence community. So he also proposed the idea that some of those circles, which are appear very close to military bases in England. They maybe they are some kind of like tests for a high-powered beam weapon mm-hmm. that is high into the space, and they're using that design as a way like to calibrate the system. You know, mm. uh, it's, a lot of people are are uncomfortable with that because they they like you said, you know, they want the, either it's aliens or it's all a hoax. Yeah. All the possibility of in between that's too messy, but. Too bad because ufology, the paranormal is messy. Yeah, you're right. Life is messy. Everything's messy. Um, you know, talking about that beam weapon, it reminds me of something. I don't know. You may have heard me say this on the podcast, but I haven't said it for a while. But I had a sort of an outlandish theory, um, you know, during the 80s and 90s. I don't know what's going on now, but the number one uh expense in the U.S. defense budget was this secret program, Star Wars, right? Um, They would talk about it and they did these tests where the idea was that you had these devices that could shoot down missiles from Russia before they, you know, entered, re-entered the atmosphere. And so you'd blow them up in space and you'd protect everybody. It was this huge expense, hundreds of millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. And they would do these tests where they'd shoot a missile over the Pacific Ocean and then they'd, um, you know, shoot their other missile and they always missed. It was always failure. <laughs> yeah. And they said, like, well, it's like trying to, you know, shoot a bullet with a rifle, you know, like how are you? It's so the mathematics is so complicated and and the precision is so. But why are you doing this, right? Why are you spending hundreds of billions of dollars trying to do something that you have already admitted is probably impossible and is so easily overwhelmed, right? All they need to do is shoot 50 missiles at once and, you know, 48 of them are going to get through, right? So there's, it it just made no sense to me why they're doing this. Mm -hmm. But then I was thinking like, okay, what are they doing? They're sending up a lot of surveillance satellites that's part of the program is to get satellite coverage of the entire earth at all times so you're not waiting for your satellite to go over uzbekistan to see what's happening in five hours you've already got satellites over every place right Mm -hmm. um and the other technology is 
satellite, either ground-based, like these things they're trying to shoot down missiles over the Pacific, or satellite-based nuclear-powered lasers mm-hmm. that would mm-hmm. zap the missile, in theory, when it leaves the atmosphere, they've tracked it, they know its trajectory, then they've got a satellite with a laser, boom, blow it up. Again, totally impractical, but that's where the research money's going. So then it occurs to me, wait a minute, you've got the satellite surveillance system of the entire planet. Then once you have these nuclear power laser-armed satellites in orbit, mm-hmm. you can vaporize anyone on Earth mm-hmm. at any time from space. Mm-hmm. You don't need an army anymore. Mm-hmm. You don't need to mobilize your population to say, you know, the fucking whomever is evil and we have to go fight them and you have to join the army and go six months in boot camp and then we're going to go invade the country. You don't need to do that anymore. You want to blow up Saddam Hussein? Just fucking blow him up. You need 15 guys in a bunker in Utah somewhere, press some buttons. It's like it takes drone warfare to the next level. Right. Yeah, and there's been a a movie about that. I think the title is The End of Violence or something like that. They find that there was this secret uh, program to take out any person in the planet surgically and strategically using, you know, these space platforms. I don't know. I mean, and obviously, if people in ufology, you ask them about Star Wars, they will say, well... That was uh, Regan's plan to defend ourselves from the aliens that are coming from from outer space. There is even a more interesting idea, which is that uh, the Star Wars problem was a deception, that a, a ruse that was done in order to make the Soviets to try to keep up with the Americans in their spending. You know, okay, they have the anti-missile system. Now we need to create the anti missile system missile and the anti-anti-missile system and that supposedly made the Soviet uh, Soviet Union to go bankrupt mm. and you know that was the utility of 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 the of of the of the Star Wars uh program there are there's right now there's a really interesting thing going on with the navy there's a guy a scientist who works in the navy who whose name is uh, Salvatore Cesar Paisa. And this guy, like, was granted a patent by the U.S. patent office for basically a goddamn UFO. So you read the patent, and it's like an anti-gravity aircraft that doesn't need uh, any kind of, like, uh, propulsion system that will go tens of thousands of uh, of Gs instantly. It's almost like uh, science fiction stuff, right? And you will think, why is it that the U.S. office granted this patent, which seems to be so unfeasible? And the, re- the reason is that uh, someone in the Navy wrote a letter to the uh, U.S. patent office and said, we ask you to please grant this patent because we have reason to believe that the Chinese are already researching into this technology. So we need to, you know, like be prepared for that. And they will say, okay, so they're telling us that the China, that American enemies 
have these advanced systems that you know go beyond our wildest uh, imaginations. Uh, but then you realize, okay, so why the patent? You know, I mean, w- w- since when have the Chinese been stopped by a patent? You know, they, they right. steal whatever they want. I wonder if this idea of, of putting that out there is for the Chinese to see, ah, oh, so the Americans think this is feasible. Maybe we need to spend a couple billion yuans to try to see if we can copy them, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Maybe that's what's going on. I don't know. Like I said, you know, it's all it's so many smokes and mirrors in this. It's all field. peacocking. Yeah, yeah. It's it's crazy. It's like, look, we can waste so much money. We're better than you. Like the logic of that makes no sense at all. Ah, uh, I Miguel, thank you for for finding time for this. And I'm sorry I fucked up the uh, the time zone thing earlier. <laughs> Don't worry, my pleasure. You know, I mean, I know we could probably keep talking for two more hours, but easy. We can save it for another, another easy podcast. But, mm-hmm. but see, because I fucked up the time zone thing, I didn't have any breakfast, so I'm starving. I'm not worrying. I'm, I'm inter- <laughs> intermittently fasting here. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, one of the the positive effects of this quarantine thing is that I've been forced to relax my. Um, you know, my sort of rules around not doing remote interviews. I, mm-hmm. I've, you know, I've wanted to have you on the show for years, but I remember you came out to LA, we were trying to arrange it, you uh, were at a conference or something up there. Um, and I keep thinking, yeah, I'll get down to Mexico and um, hopefully I'll be in Mexico this winter. I, I, uh, yeah, we'll see what happens, but I'd like to take the van down to Baja and just hide out down there for the winter. So we'll see. Maybe we can get you to come over from Mexico City and visit Baja. You ever been there? Nope. <laughs> no. I will look look forward to see uh, uh, Baja California. And all the, there's a lot of uh, really nice places there that uh, are still unspoiled. Yeah. By... Well, I'm I'm going to go spoil them this winter. <laughs> I think. Well, Mexicans will love you to spoil it because after this is over, we are going to be so broke and so desperate for dollars. You know, they're going well, to hand you the, the keys of the city by the time you arrive. We'll see, man. I, I don't know what the dollar is going to be worth. They're printing so many of them right now. Right. I can't imagine the value is going to hold, but I don't know. Strange times. Um, where can people where can people uh, get in touch with you or or read your blogs or get more of your stuff? Right. Well, uh, mainly the the page I contribute to most is the Daily Grail www.dailygrail.com. That's where I'm a news administrator and and uh, and a blogger. Also contribute to Mysterious Universe mysteriousuniverse.org, which also has a really nice podcast. And and I have my own webpage, absurdbydesign.com, which I use as a, kind of like a gallery for, you know, the kind of stuff that I use, that the covers of books that, that I design and artistic commissions and whatnot. And a friend of mine has a podcast called uh, Where Did the Road Go?, where you know he invites me occasionally on these roundtables to talk about this sort of stuff, 
and 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 there's also another podcast by my friend uh, Greg Bishop, Radio Misterioso, where I also occasionally uh, are interviewed. So yeah, I mean, mm. if people go and, and on Twitter and, and you know type Red Pill Junkie, uh, I'm sure they could find me. Yeah, cool. And you mentioned you're doing freelance work. Is that mainly uh, graphic design these days, or are you still doing architectural stuff or interior design? Or? I probably will be then open, you know, if someone say, well, you know, maybe you could try to help me design, you know, my kitchen or whatever. Although the problem with interior design is that it's not something that you can do by yourself alone. You know, you need contractors and carpenters and the guy who provides the, the, the masonry, whatever. So it gets a bit more difficult here. So uh, that's why I resorted to graphic design because that's just me and my computer and I in my own boss and there's right. no, one, no one else involved. But, you know, I mean, I'm still trying to see if I can get back to, you know, the interior design business. I'm not sure even after this is over because I'm too old. You know, I'm, I'm 46 years old and at that industry, only six young, clueless people who are willing to pay to work for peanuts, insane amounts of hours. So old timers like me, is not the kind of material they are searching to exploit. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, if anyone has any uh, freelance graphic uh, needs, I can definitely attest to Miguel's skills. He'll make you look like a '70s porn star <laughs> if that's exactly. what you want. <laughs> I do. Yeah. All right. Thanks, man. No, thank you. Hey guys, just wanted to uh, leave a, a brief outro here. Hope the audio is not too bad. I'm recording this with my headphones. Um, I just, you know, I, I talk shit about how terrible people are, like all that stuff about pissing on the toilet seat and uh, not wearing a mask in public and all that. Uh, but I also want to take an opportunity to talk about how great people are. Uh, my sister told me that she has received donations from folks who listen to the podcast and, uh, I just want to say I really appreciate that. Uh, Nicole Evangelista, Matthew Lem Lemley, Lemley, Justin Howe, Austin Willis, and goddamn Gwen Swinnerton. They all sent money to my sister uh, to help her with her uh, nonprofit, Stepping Forward LA, that helps kids who are aging out of foster care. And uh, that's fucking awesome. So thank you for that. Here's mom and Carsey Blanton. Okay, mom, uh, tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay, in our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of T-shirts. Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, Vanthropology, Tangentially Speaking, Paleo Modern, and Talking Out of My Ass. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies or koozies or whatever they're called. Oh, civilized to death. Design. They're all civilized That's right. to death. We have stickers and car decals, right? Yes. Okay. There you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. 
example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. Doesn't ask for much. A little music and a soft touch. Why don't you let it out to play? Your heart is in a birdcage, singing in your chest. You wanna shut it up, but give it a rest. You're gonna die one day. Why do we waste our time thinking about a reputation? Go down, we'll go singing to the smoke alarms, we'll dance into the ground. 